0: that's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. PDW reward prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. The most shocking thing that I learned from the doctor's testimony was that not a single fatal blow was delivered from the skillet from NBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. The Courtney's double homicide crime scene is by far the most perplexing that I've ever dealt with. The choice of weapons, the forensic countermeasures, staging, the note, they all continue to erect barriers to the truth. As of right now, we at least have a clear idea of what the crime scene looked like after the killer or killers fled the scene. But today, we're going to try to get a little bit closer to figuring out what happened during the actual assault. Lloyd and Agnes Courtney suffered 75 injuries during the attack that resulted in their deaths. Dr. Nizam Pirwani performed their autopsies, and through his trial testimony, he shares his opinions on what exactly happened during the murders. With all of the chaos in this very complicated crime scene, What actually killed Lloyd and Agnes Courtney? Let's dig into Dr. Pirwani's testimony and see if we can't find that answer. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.
1: Direct examination begins with prosecutor Alana Minton questioning Dr. Perwani about his qualifications. Perwani graduated from medical school in 1976. He then moved on to postgrad training in pathology at Baylor Hospital for four years. At the time of the trial, he was a board-certified pathologist with certification in anatomic, clinical, and forensic pathology, and he had been serving as the Tarrant County Medical Examiner for over 30 years. He estimates in his testimony that he has performed over 5,000 autopsies throughout his career. Dr. Pirwani performed the autopsies on Lloyd and Agnes on the morning after their murders. He began Lloyd's autopsy at 9.30 in the morning and then Agnes's at 12.30. Lloyd's body was described as fully clothed when he received it, and he was covered with, quote, large amounts of blood. As his clothes were removed, Dr. Perwani notes that Lloyd has sustained several injuries, including cut wounds, stab wounds, and blunt force traumatic injuries. He testifies that he documented the presence of, quote, at least seven cut wounds and 15 stab wounds. The blunt force wounds were a little more complicated. Perwani testified that, quote, they were very complex injuries, and there were pattern injuries. But all in all, there were at least 17 blunt force traumatic injuries noted on the body surface. He begins to get into the details of the blunt force injuries, but much like we saw in Patrick Gass's testimony last week, the state's strategy seems to be to move fast and not to get into too many details. Minton asks Pirwani what he means by pattern injuries. He says that a pattern injury is produced when a blunt instrument imparts a pattern on the body surface. He goes on to state that he was given a skillet, a frying pan, and a broken, quote, tripod off a nightstand or stool to compare to the pattern injuries on Lloyd. I'm not exactly sure at this point what he's referring to when he says tripod. The transcripts read like there may be a language barrier issue at play here. You'll notice in other areas where I read the doctor's testimony that his English is good, but it's not great. In any case, before we get any explanation about the tripod, Minton moves on to ask about defensive wounds. The doctor explains that Mr. Courtney had at least five defensive wounds on his hands and his elbow. And then there's an interesting discussion about a, quote, cluster of stab wounds. Minton asks, quote, In your training and experience, do you believe that a person who receives cluster wounds is defending themselves or not defending themselves? Pirwani responds, Generally, when a cluster wound are produced in a very tight geographical area, it implies a couple things. The first thing, of course, is that they're very rapid repetitive blows, and the defendant, He later explains that by defendant he means the person who is being attacked, was not able to change his or her position. The other possibility, of course, is that these wounds incurred or occurred when the defendant could no more defend himself and was perhaps unable to do so because he was either mortally injured or for any other reason, he was not able to move when the blows were inflicted. Minton asks, Such as not being conscious? Pirwani. That's right. The prosecutor moves on to ask about any large or long cut wounds found on Lloyd. Perwani responds, There were several large cut wounds. In particular, there were cut wounds on his right neck as well as his left neck. And he goes on to say, and this part is really interesting, quote, Generally, again, long cut wounds of the neck are produced at the very end when the victim can no more defend himself. And they are classified as coup de grâce wounds, where the victim is now being cut by the assailant in an attempt to make sure that the person does not survive the injuries. So based on what the doctor is saying here, Lloyd's killer made an attempt to slit his throat, multiple attempts actually, after he was already down and dying, just to make sure that he didn't survive. Now the target for an offender slashing someone's throat is one or both of the carotid arteries. These arteries run vertically on either side of your windpipe, and death will result in seconds if the carotid is severed. But in this case, that wasn't accomplished. There were multiple cuts on both sides of Lloyd's neck. So, behaviorally speaking, I think that we can rule out a doctor as a killer. The carotid artery is not located on the side of the neck. That's where your jugular vein is, which could still be deadly, but not as quickly as if you cut the carotid. I would venture to guess that whoever killed Lloyd did not possess a whole lot of knowledge about human anatomy. Next, Minton enters some photos into evidence and has Pirwani break down some specific injuries. The first is States Exhibit 90. Pirani describes what he sees in the photo as follows. Quote, States 90 depicts the top of the head and the forehead of Mr. Lloyd Courtney. and What you see on top there in the forehead area is a very complex injury. It's a pattern injury produced by a tripod, the bracket of a tripod. And then you're seeing in the middle of the picture a very large gash, laceration, and that was produced by the edge of a frying pan or skillet. Here he mentions the tripod again, and still, I don't know what he's talking about. Based on what we see in the crime scene photos and from context, I can only speculate that he's referring to the end table that was found broken next to Lloyd's body. In any case, according to his assessment, Lloyd was hit on the forehead with both a frying pan and a tripod. And then Dr. Birwani describes State's Exhibit 91, a photo of Lloyd's head that shows where a blunt object was used to, quote, literally tear the scalp off of Lloyd. The next up is Exhibit 92. This photo shows a curved blunt force injury that matches with the curved edge of one of the cast iron skillets. Quote, it matches perfectly the wound that we saw on the head of the decedent, end quote. Number 93 is a photo of a gaping stab wound on the back of Lloyd's neck. The wound was caused by a single-edged knife, blunt on one side and angled on the other. And right after that, Minton enters in States Exhibit 33, a photo of the paring knife that was used to stab the note into Lloyd's pant leg. The knife blade measures 2.5 inches, and Dr. Pirwani testifies that this knife is consistent with all of the stabbing wounds found on both Lloyd and Agnes. The doctor testified that, quote, the depth of penetration or the track ranged anywhere from one inch up to two and a half inches into the bodies. The injuries were also consistent with the width of the knife blade. It's a tapered blade beginning at the tip and then widening out to about a half inch at the thickest point. Pirwani says that all the stab injuries range from three eighths of an inch to one inch in width, which he says would also be consistent with this same paring knife. Now, even though these injuries are wider than the blade itself, rarely do we see a stab wound that takes place during a dynamic attack that goes straight in and out. And that's why a half-inch blade can oftentimes make a one-inch cut on the skin, because both the knife and the victim are moving. Exhibit 94 depicts the neck of Mr. Courtney. In the photo, as described by Dr. Pirwani, several injuries are visible, although he focuses on two that he considers very important. Both wounds are on the front left of Lloyd's neck. One is a stab wound and one is a cutting wound. The doctor states that one of these wounds likely contributed to Lloyd's ultimate cause of death, which is described by the actual autopsy report as, quote, multiple blunt and stab wounds with partial transection of the left jugular vein, end quote. On the stand, Pirwani stated, quote, This is the most important wound here. This is the wound that, in fact, penetrated the soft tissue of the neck and partially lacerated the left jugular vein of Mr. Lloyd Courtney. End quote. Then Minton asks, And in your opinion, Dr. Pirwani, is that injury right there the lethal wound? His answer, It's certainly one of the injuries, if perhaps one of the most important injuries, that caused a tremendous amount of hemorrhage, which resulted in the death of Mr. Courtney. The prosecutor then asks if this injury is consistent with someone being attacked while standing up or on the ground. Pirwani says that he can't tell one way or the other. What Minton is getting at here is that Lloyd's killer was shorter than him. She asks if there was any directionality to the wound, and Pirwani explains that the blade was thrust into Smitty's neck at an upward angle. Her point was moot given the fact that there's no way to know if Lloyd was standing or laying down when the injury was inflicted. And really, even if we knew that he was standing, the upward motion still doesn't tell us anything. Hands are lower than necks. So even if his attacker was a foot taller than him, the knife would still likely have entered his body at an upward angle, even if he was standing. Pirwani then moves on to explain why he had earlier stated that the long cutting wounds were indicative of the victim being incapacitated when the killer cut them. One of the cuts on Smitty's neck is considered to be one of these long cutting wounds. Minton asked why he believes this wound was inflicted after Lloyd was unable to defend himself, and this was his response. Well, it's a very sharp, smooth cut wound. And to produce such a long cut wound, the victim was probably not moving at that particular time, and therefore, it is consistent with an injury that occurred pretty much at the very end of the assault. In addition to that, you see that there isn't much bleeding. I noted that there was no significant bleeding. So this was a perimortal defect produced at the very end. Perimortal means that Lloyd was, quote, nearly dying or was in an agonal state of his life. Essentially, he was gone. His heart may have still been faintly beating, but his body was in the process of shutting down when that cut was made. I think that this detail is going to be important later when we work on developing a profile of our killer. Whoever did this brutally beat Lloyd over the head with multiple cast iron skillets and possibly a table in a fight that spanned across two rooms after literally scalping him with one of the pans and delivering a total of 17 blows not to mention the stabbing wounds as Mr. Courtney lay on the floor helpless with his life slipping away this offender got up close and personal and slowly slit his throat or at least they tried to As the testimony goes on, Pirwani describes defensive cut wounds on Lloyd's forearm and his right hand. He had cutting wounds on his palm, his pinky finger, and his ring finger. And he also had two cutting wounds on his left hand, located on the palm side of his index and ring fingers. So Lloyd was actively fighting his attacker, who was at that point trying to stab him. Again, this is information that will likely be used in developing our profile. Lloyd was a big man. At a point when he was alert and mobile enough to block stabbing motions of his killer, he was not able to overpower them.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? They are also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+.
1: Towards the end of Pirwani's testimony about Lloyd's autopsy, we finally get a little bit of clarity about the tripod that he had mentioned earlier. We know from the shrapnel that Lloyd was beaten with two cast iron skillets, ranging from the living room couch all the way to his final resting place in the dining room. He was also stabbed with a knife while he was still conscious and fighting, as indicated by the defensive wounds on his hands. And based on what we find here at the end of Pirwani's testimony about his autopsy, he was also beaten over the head with at least one of the legs from the coffee table. This was a brutal, sustained attack. Based on the autopsy, it looks like Lloyd was first attacked while sitting on the couch. He was hit over the head with a skillet. Then as he got up, he continued to be beaten with the skillet as it broke into several pieces. We have no way of knowing at this point if he was left alone for any period of time. But based on what I'm reading in the autopsy, I don't think that he was. If I'm reading the report correctly, somehow none of the blows to Lloyd fractured his skull or injured his brain at all. Meaning... There is no evidence whatsoever that he was ever knocked unconscious. So it would seem that after he was struck on the couch, he got up and was hit at least one more time in the living room, shattering the pan. And this is where it becomes difficult to believe that the attack was carried out by one person. Lloyd, weighing it at 189 pounds and built, as they say, like a brick shit house, moves his way towards the phone that's around 20 feet away. During this trip, he is beaten with yet another skillet. The solid wood coffee table is taken from the living room, its contents knocked onto the floor. The table is intact until it reaches the dining room by the phone, where all of the legs are broken off, and then the killer strikes Lloyd with one of those legs. At that point, he's still conscious when his attacker grabs a knife from the kitchen. The phone cord is cut, presumably while Lloyd's still capable of making a phone call, otherwise why cut it? And then the stabbing begins. And again, Lloyd is still fighting at this point. We know this because of the defensive wounds on his hands. And then finally, one stab wound strikes something fatal. The blade severs Lloyd's jugular vein. As I said, it's not as effective as cutting the carotid artery, but fatal nonetheless. And then, as Lloyd is fading from life, the killer crouches down over his dying body and slowly and deliberately slices the blade across his neck. How in the holy hell could one person have possibly carried out this attack? I just can't see it. We start the process all over again as Pirwani is asked to testify about Agnes' autopsy. He described her body as being fully clothed and her face covered in blood when she was brought to the morgue. She suffered 15 stab wounds, 7 cutting wounds, and 17 blunt force injuries, very similar to Lloyd. Minton goes through a similar process with this autopsy. She begins by having Dr. Pirwani describe a photo marked as Exhibit 98. This is how the doctor described the photo. The States 98 is a photograph of Mrs. Agnes Courtney. And you can see in this picture, there are multiple injuries present on the forehead, blunt force traumatic injuries, a stab wound along the lateral border of the right eyebrow, abrasions due to blunt trauma along the margin of the eye socket, as well as multiple cut wounds, as well as stab wounds of the anterior neck area. So we have blunt force injuries to the forehead, a stab to the eyebrow, a scrape from a blunt force injury to the eye socket, multiple cut wounds, and stab wounds to the front of Agnes's neck. It seems that Agnes was hit pretty hard on the right side of her face. Now, there are a lot of factors to consider here, but one might hypothesize that this would indicate that the killer was swinging what we could only assume was a skillet with their left hand. But we can't forget that there are a lot of unknown factors here. The pan could have been swung in a backhand motion, and they could have had weapons in both hands. Point being that we can't just jump to the conclusion that the killer was left-handed. In the next photo we find more injuries to Agnes's neck and chin. She was stabbed in the left side of her chin and then again on the left side of her throat. There's also a blunt force bruise on the right side of her chin. And one of the stabbing wounds to Agnes's neck severed both her jugular vein and her carotid artery. That wound absolutely would have been fatal. In the next exhibit, Pirwani is looking at another photo showing injuries to the left side of Agnes's neck. Here we see very similar cutting wounds to what we saw in Lloyd's neck. Superficial, long-cutting slices. And again, the doctor theorizes that these injuries were likely inflicted after Agnes was unable to move or defend herself. And then comes State's Exhibit 102, which is a photo of the right side of Agnes's neck and head. Pirwani described the photo as follows. We are seeing here multiple stab wounds as well as cut wounds and a blunt traumatic injury. The blunt trauma is localized to the right side of the head, which produced a rather deep gash or laceration of the scalp. And she has a clustering of stab wounds along the side of the right lateral neck. She has a couple of deep cut wounds, one along the rim of the right mandible, then along the right lateral neck. There is another wound here, which is in fact a stab wound on the right anterior neck area. Pirwani goes on to describe several more blunt force injuries to Agnes's head, and then Minton asks if any of the injuries on Agnes or Lloyd fractured their skulls. And they did not. Dr. Pirwani explains why here. Quote, Usually when the instrument that is used, which is heavy and hard and applied with sufficient force, will produce a fracture. If the instrument breaks in the process so that the forces which are used to produce a trauma is dissipated and such an injury would not produce fracture. So I suspect in this particular case, the instrument may not have been of sufficient strength or sturdiness to produce the fracture of the skull. This is more evidence of the fact that the cast iron skillets were not in any way effective as a weapon. They shattered on impact, only causing superficial wounds which circles me right back to the question I asked last week. Why keep grabbing more skillets when they're not getting the job done? In States 106, we find an injury that may support the theory that Agnes was napping when the attack began. Agnes was stabbed in the back. Now, there are a lot of ways to look at this injury, but let's think about it behaviorally. According to the States theory, Agnes walked in on Lloyd's attack, she dropped the groceries and retreated to the back bedroom while being chased by her daughter. Well, let's walk through how that might play out. Let's first assume that she walked in during the attack. If that were the case, I would expect one of two things to happen. Either she would engage in the fight and try to defend her husband, or she would flee so that she could call for help. Now, we know, obviously, that she didn't flee back out through the garage door. and We also know that she didn't engage in the fight in the dining room. It's my understanding that none of Agnes' blood was found anywhere besides the bedroom other than maybe some transfer blood from the killer's hands. So I think that we can rule out that she walked into the house in the middle of the attack on Lloyd. If she had, she would have fled back out the door she came, not past the attack through to the back of the house. In my opinion, either he was already dead when she arrived home, or nothing had happened yet. So now let's jump into scenario number two. Agnes walk in and Smitty is already dead. Now the only way that this theory makes sense is that she walks in the door through the laundry room and the dining room before she discovers his body. She then drops the groceries by the kitchen. Now there's no evidence that she made an effort to check on Lloyd or to render aid to him. That would suggest that if he was dead when she arrived that not only was the killer still in the house but also that Agnes knew that the person in the house was a threat. Expanding on that hypothesis, let's go with the state's theory for the time being and say that Debbie is the killer. The more I think about it, the more the idea of Agnes walking in the door to a dead Lloyd just doesn't add up. Even if Debbie was standing in the house covered in blood, I can't imagine that Agnes' first thought would be that her daughter had just murdered her husband. You might theorize that Agnes would either assume that Deborah was just another victim, covered in her own blood, or that she was bloody from trying to help her dad. So why not go to her husband's aid? But really, that's not the biggest problem. According to the state's theory, Agnes retreated to the bedroom, which means that the killer was between her and the door to the garage where she came in. Otherwise, she would have ran the other way. That means that the killer had to have been either in the living room or in the dining room when she walked in. Now, bear with me here. Try to think up a scenario where Agnes walks in and Lloyd is dead in the living room, and Debbie is standing either in the living room or the dining room. In that scenario, Debbie would either be trying to convince Agnes that someone else had killed Lloyd... In which case we would expect Agnes to immediately go to her husband and likely be killed right then and there in the dining room. Or Debbie was in a murderous rage when Agnes walked in, but then how and why would Agnes run past her to the back bedroom where she would be cornered? And why wouldn't Debbie attack her immediately when she walked in the door? This entire theory falls apart very quickly as soon as you start to really think it through. There's just no scenario that I can come up with where Agnes walks in to find her husband dead, gets past her murderous daughter, never goes to render aid to her husband, and pins herself in the back bedroom. And then, when you add in the stab in the back, I become even more convinced that Agnes was in bed when she was attacked. Look, even if she was being chased down the hall, one thing that you can just about count on a victim not doing is completely turning their back on their attacker. It just doesn't happen. Even when running, a victim will want to keep their eye on their attacker. And we have no blood trail in the hallway. So the only scenario that makes sense to me when we factor in all of the evidence that we have up to this point is that Agnes Courtney was sleeping when someone snuck up on her and stabbed her in the back. Pirwani goes on to describe several defensive wounds found on Mrs. Courtney bruises and lacerations to her hands. Then he notes a series of bruises and abrasions to her right elbow. He points out that these injuries are consistent with Agnes being thrown or pushed onto something hard. In my opinion, that's a stretch. We know for a fact that the killer was wildly swinging cast iron skillets at her, and we have evidence that she was defending herself. I don't see how Pirwani can distinguish between getting hit on the elbow with a pan and being thrown down and hitting her elbow on something hard. I'm sure the implication here is that Agnes hit her elbow on the brass footboard of the bed as she was being forced onto it, but I don't buy it. It most definitely doesn't fit with the stab in the back. If she'd hit her right elbow on the footboard, then she would have fallen onto the bed on her back, never leaving it exposed to be stabbed. Direct examination wraps up with Dr. Pirwani giving his opinion on the cause of death. Agnes was killed as a result of having her jugular vein and carotid artery severed. In fact, the most shocking thing that I learned from the doctor's testimony was that not a single fatal blow was delivered from the skillets. Not one. Amidst all of the gore and chaos that we see all over the scene from the cast iron pans, the blunt force attacks didn't so much as break a bone in the Courtney's. They were both killed with a two and a half inch paring knife. Cross-examination is focused mainly on the unlikelihood that a short, out-of-shape woman over 50 years old could have carried out these murders. The defense attorney, Bayes points out that the victims were struck 75 times, and one would expect that task to be exhausting and also cause a person to break a sweat. When he asks how much force would have been used to swing the skillets, Pirwani confirms that he knows that enough force was used to shatter the skillets over the heads of the Courtney's. Now, that may seem like an obvious point, but it's an important one. Some people have theorized that maybe the skillets were broken because they were banged together. But according to the ME, they were all shattered against the skulls of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney. Bayes then moves on to the second of his really only two points in cross-examination. Essentially, he's luring Pirwani into stating to the jury that this was an incredibly bloody scene. There's blood all over the living room, dining room, and bedroom. And Agnes's carotid artery was severed with a stabbing wound, which would have spurted blood until her heart stopped beating. Cross comes to a close with this exchange. Bays. Would you not expect, Dr. Pirwani, that the person who administered these 75 blows, with blood flying everywhere, would have blood all over them? Pirwani. Yes, sir. I would certainly expect that. Bays. Your reasonable medical opinion in judging the probabilities of all the blood flying around here, would it be possible for a person who administered these 75 blows without being covered with the blood of Lloyd and Agnes? Birwani's response? No, sir. It would be highly unlikely, sir. One thing that was never addressed until the very end of Cross, and really barely at that, is the time of death. No one ever asked Dr. Pirwani when he estimates the time of death to be. Bayes asked if he was able to distinguish who died first, but that's really as close as we get. Because knowing time of death would be a critical piece of information to have, I left the doctor's testimony for a minute and dug into his autopsy reports to see if any clues lied within them. Specifically, I was searching for information on the Courtney's stomach contents. Agnes's stomach was completely empty. The autopsy shows that there were no food particles in her stomach. Unfortunately, without knowing their habits, this doesn't give us a lot of information other than the fact that we can assume that she didn't eat anything within 2 hours or so of her death. Now, the neighbor across the street, Mrs. Zabo, testified that she saw Deborah walking out of the Courtney's house around 10:15 a.m. So let's think for a minute when Agnes would have had to have eaten breakfast in order for Deborah to be the killer. So if Debbie leaves the house at 10.15, now if she's guilty, then that means she performed a lot of cleanup and staging of the scene after the murders. So let's say Agnes would have been dead by around 9.30. Now, the window of time it takes for food to completely leave the stomach does have a pretty wide range. Anywhere from 90 minutes for a very active young person up to four hours in some cases for a less active older person with a slower metabolism. To be on the safe side, that would mean that Agnes either didn't eat breakfast that day, or if she did, she ate before 7.30 a.m. And that's only allowing for two hours for the food to pass. Typically, in a woman over 70, based on my research, it would take closer to three or four hours for breakfast to move past her stomach. Unfortunately, all we can do is speculate about when Agnes ate that day. We have no way of knowing exactly when or if that even happened. The only two people that would know, unfortunately, are deceased. Personally, and this is just my untrained opinion, it seems more likely to me that it was much closer to lunchtime before Agnes's stomach contents would be void of any food particles. And that would mean it was over an hour after Debbie left when Agnes died. Lloyd's stomach contents actually provide us with a little more insight. His autopsy indicates that his stomach contained quote, 350 grams of food particles with fragments of banana. End quote. The fact that the banana fragments are still identifiable indicates that Lloyd had eaten it pretty recently before his death, which would suggest that the banana likely wasn't part of his breakfast. But that's really not the important part. What jumped out to me was was that there is something conspicuously missing from the Courtney's kitchen. There are no bananas. There's a fruit basket on top of the credenza in the kitchen that's full of what looks like apples, but no bananas. And now, to be clear, I acknowledge there are a lot of unknowns here. Maybe Lloyd ate the last banana while Agnes was at the store. Or maybe they keep their bananas in a cupboard somewhere. But in my mind's eye, I keep seeing the same thing the bundle of bananas on the floor sticking out from the grocery bags. Sadly, we don't have a really clear picture of the groceries. But in the video, it almost looks to me like a banana had been ripped off of the bundle. Which, if true, would absolutely prove that no violence was occurring when Agnes got home with the groceries. Based on everything that we've learned today, My opinion is that whoever killed the Courtney's did so quite a while after Agnes returned home with the groceries. She had time to lay down and fall asleep, and Lloyd settled in on the couch to watch TV before work, and he ate a banana. But in order to really narrow down the timeline and the events of that day, we need to know what time Agnes was at the produce market. I'm hoping that we find the answer to that and the answer to many more questions when we dig into the forensics. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay wood Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRoughTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming. Murb M U R R B G A M I N G. And don't forget that we always have our 24 7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269 224 2833.
0: There's nothing like Ireland's wild Atlantic Way. 1,600 miles of soaring cliffs, dreamy remote islands and buzzing little towns. Not to mention the seafood. Oh, the seafood. And if you drive with Irish ferries, you'll arrive relaxed and ready to explore. Bring the whole gang, pets and all. Fill the boot with goodies and get a warm Irish welcome before you even get to Ireland. Hop across from Hollyhead to Dublin. Book early at irishferries.com and see travel differently. Terms and conditions apply.